and welcome to Middle East 101 lecture series organized by the Middle East Institute, National University of Singapore. We welcome all the participants here for the, this lecture uh, where our speaker is Dr. Kevin Lim. Uh, he specializes in Iran's domestic and foreign policy, but also researches other regional countries, including Israel, Lebanon, and Iraq. He is a senior risk advisor for the Middle East and North Africa at IHS Markets Country Risk Analysis and Forecasting Team, offering clients geostrategic, domestic, political, and security risk advice and forecasts and contributes analytical products and bespoke client advisory services. Dr. Lim received his PhD in international relations from Tel Aviv University's School of Political Science, Government and International Affairs. He was formerly a delegate with the International Committee of the Red Cross with postings in Palestinian West Bank, Sudan's Darfur region, Iraq's Gaddafi's Libya and Afghanistan, handling issues linked to the protection of the civilian population in the context of international humanitarian law and networking with non-state actors and armed militias. Dr. Lim would be talking on the topic Israel more than just Palestine, uh, which is under the broader domain of geopolitical competition in the Middle East. Uh, once our speaker uh, finishes his lecture, then we will have question answer round uh, for which uh, our esteemed audience can type their question in the chat box and send it to MEI events team. They will then forward those questions to me and my name is Asif Shuja. I will be the moderator for this session. Uh, so with this uh, brief introduction, the floor is your Dr. Lim. Hello everybody. Uh, thanks, many thanks uh, Asif for, for the introduction. Uh, so this lecture also took place last year, but since then uh, there've been quite a number of important changes, uh, particularly in the turnover in government in countries like Israel, the US, as well as Iran. Uh, but before that, let me, again, like last year, start with a brief review uh, of the evolution of Israel's geopolitical setting over the past seven or eight decades. In the first decades of statehood since 1948, when Israel was established, or perhaps reconstituted uh, is, is probably a better word, its principal geopolitical challenge was largely survival in an extremely hostile environment. Until the late 1970s, Israel's major preoccupation was over wars of survival, state survival, national survival against multiple Arab armies. And every decade saw at least one major war. In 1948, we had uh, the first one, the War of Independence, after Israel, of course, uh, declared independence. In 1956, we had the Suez Crisis, which also additionally involved uh, the UK and France. In 1967, we had the June Six-Day War. We had the War of Attrition uh, between Israel and a number of its uh, neighbors, including Egypt, uh, from 1967 to 1970. And then uh, we had the Yom Kippur War in October 1973. Now, these were interstate conventional wars, uh, mainly against Egypt and Syria, which were the two leading Arab powers of the, of the period. Uh, but there were also wars that at various times involved Jordan, uh, which is Israel's immediate neighbor to its east, 
Lebanon, which is uh, to Israel's north, as well as Iraq, which at one further, at one remove, uh, is at one remove away from Israel to its west, uh, to its east. Now, conventional warfare in the region's mostly desert or semi-arid environment involved a focus on ground maneuver, a lot of ground maneuver, a lot of um, armor warfare, a lot of um, uh, emphasis on air superiority, as well as aerial defenses. In order for such a country as Israel to compensate for quantitative inferiority, now if you look at the map, uh, you'll see that Israel is a tiny drop within a very large Islamic ocean, uh, a bit like what Singapore is within the within its, uh, well, with its neighbors, if its immediate neighbors at least. Um, so in order to compensate to, for, for that sort of inferiority, uh, Israel's approach to national security involved and still involves three key elements based on qualitative superiority. Number one, the establishment of a disproportionately outsized military. This includes universal drafts, men and women, uh, and what we in Singapore know as reservists. Number two, technological edge or superiority, including, uh, according to foreign media reports, the Dimona option, or in other words, nuclear deterrence. And number three, superpower patronage. On this last uh, point, superpower patronage, just a quick note, in the early years since Israel's um, establishment as a state, Israel actually sought French patronage and it only later afterwards turned to the US. At the, still continuing at the, at the diplomatic level, um, in what was known in what we call the periphery doctrine, Israel was also in those decades, heavily focused on outflanking its hostile immediate Arab neighbors. And how was it doing so? By establishing ties with an outer circle, uh, outer circle beyond these immediate neighbors uh, that included non-Arab allies like Kemalist Turkey, uh, Iran under the, the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the Kurds in Iraq, uh, Ethiopia, and to a less successful uh, extent, the Maronite Christians in Lebanon, to the north of Israel. From the late 1970s, this was already after the big, the last big war, which was 1973 Yom Kippur War, Israel's geopolitical position began changing, particularly with the onset of the Lebanese civil war on its northern border. Now, this civil war, devastating, lasted from 1975 until around 1990, for about 15 years. Israel's military involvement in its northern neighbor, Lebanon, aimed at removing the threat posed by Palestinian uh, militants who had been displaced to Lebanon from Jordan in 1970, some years before. Uh, Israel back then was also under the right-wing uh, Likud government. The first time, well, Israel was for the first time under a right-wing government from 1977. So this period, uh, the government was led by Prime Minister Menachem Begin, uh, and then also uh, Defense Minister Ariel Sharon. Uh, and during that period, Israel ended up invading Lebanon all the way to Beirut, many, many tens of kilometers into its north. Uh, Israel subsequently... Uh, sort of scaled back its military presence and focused on occupying a security buffer in southern Lebanon, right on Israel's northern border, until the year 2000, for roughly uh, 18 years or so. Now, back home, uh, in the West and in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which Israel in, was able to bring under its control from 1967, in the 1967 uh, Six-Day War, Israel faced Palestinian uprisings, 
uh, or intifadas in Arabic, uh, first in 1987 and again from the year 2000. But the point is that while Israel's conduct of warfare had now largely transitioned towards a guerrilla type urban warfare situation, it no longer, uh, by, the late 19, uh, by the late 1970s, it no longer faced an existential threat from the conventional capabilities of multiple uh, massive Arab armies. That period was gone. Today, the main uh, geopolitical threats that Israel faces, at this moment at least, is no longer existential in the way previously understood, nor against large Arab armies. Uh, and on many indicators of hard power, Israel is now the region's leading military force. What it faces today instead is an asymmetric threat posed by a large uh, non-Arab Muslim state, namely the Islamic Republic of Iran, whose population is 10 times Israel's uh, and whose land territory is over 70 times Israel's. It is not just Iran, but also uh, what is called the axis of resistance that Iran leads. And this is an axis that comprises mainly Arab militia proxies and client non-state groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, as well as groups like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad inside the Gaza Strip. So let's take a closer look at this uh, so-called axis of resistance and how this conflict with Israel has been uh, panning out. So Iran, uh, has since 1979 seen Israel as an ideological arch enemy. Iran, the Islamic Republic, doesn't recognize Israel, nor its right to exist, and has over the decades, almost right after uh, Iran's own 1979 revolution, and certainly during the Lebanese civil war from the 80s, built up a coalition of regional and mostly non-state allies against Israel. Israel deals with three main Iran-related concerns. The first uh, is Iran's nuclear program, which Israel uh, assesses to ultimately have military objectives, military end objectives. Number two, Iran's ballistic missile program, which for the, uh, or over the past years have in principle uh, acquired the ability to range all of the Middle East, including Israel, up to a range of 2,000 kilometers. Number three, as mentioned, uh, Iran-backed regional proxies and client militias, which are mainly Shia, Shia Muslim, but, but also include a minority of Sunni Muslim groups. Iran's allies include uh, Syria, the only really, uh, the only main, the only um, state actor. So Syria under the house of Assad, both Bashar al-Assad and his father, his late father, Hafez al-Assad. Uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, which was established in around 1982 during the Lebanese civil war. It also includes a bunch of Iraqi Shia uh, militias, such as the Qatayb Hezbollah, Qatayb Ahl al-Haq, and uh, Qatayb Saeed al-Shuhada, and many, many other militias that uh, are pro-Iran and are backed by Iran inside Iraq. Uh, number four, Palestinian rejectionist militias, including, uh, like I've mentioned, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but also Hamas. And number five, uh, Ansarullah, or better known as the Houthis in uh, Yemen, which is a Shia outfit, but it's not 12 Shia like Iran, but rather belongs to the Fiverr or Zaidi uh, stream of uh, Shiaism. These are all, these groups are all opposed to the US and Israel uh, to varying degrees and have different types of working relations with Iran, with Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon being Iran's closest and most powerful proxy. Um, to this end, Acknowledging that Iran will never recognize a state 
of Israel or its right to exist, Israel has sought uh, over the years to contain Iran and its expanding power and influence. Now, in the past years, this has uh, come to focus mainly in, uh, on four arenas and heavily in the shadows, although this has also become increasingly open as well. Number one, you have sabotage and assassinations targeting Iran's, uh, mainly Iran's nuclear and missile programs. Number two, airstrikes in Syria, mainly in Syria. Number three, cyber warfare. And number four, this maritime kit for tax, including for the first time deaths uh, uh, in, in the most recent incident. So let me go through them one by one. Um, so Israel's main perceived threat is Iran's nuclear program. Iran already has the uh, missile delivery systems and is currently enriching uranium to as high as 60% missile purity, 6-0, which is very close to military grade levels of 85 to 90 plus percent. Uh, by military grade levels. By that we mean, of course, the quantity required to fuel one nuclear device or to fuel a nuclear device. Uh, on the other hand, we, uh, we don't think that Iran has, or we think that Iran has probably not yet perfected the ability to miniaturize that uranium metal uh, in a way that it fits within a ballistic missile warhead so that it's deployable as a nuclear weapon. Uh, that process is called weaponization. Some of you might recall uh, that Israel had previously struck Iraq's uh, Osirak nuclear reactor. This was back in 1981 in Operation Opera. Uh, and then subsequently in 2007, Israel again uh, struck another nuclear reactor, this time Sirius in the Deir Ezzor region uh, in Operation Out of the Box. Uh, these measures were and are based on what is known as the Begin Doctrine, once again named after uh, then Prime Minister Menachem Begin, who oversaw the, the first strike on Iraq, uh, Iraq's Osirak reactor. And the Begin, the, the Begin Doctrine essentially seeks to deny Israel's enemies from acquiring uh, a militarized nuclear capability. With Iran, Israel now faces a far more complex problem. Uh, given how Iran has also been able to disperse its multiple nuclear facilities. It's not just one, it's, it's many, many different types of facilities. Uh, some enrichment and others focus on other uh, activities along the, the, um, the nuclear uh, cycle. Uh, it's also moved some of these facilities deep underground. During the um, negotiations that led in mid-2015, to the nuclear agreement, also known as JCPOA, or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, and then until President Trump subsequently withdrew from the same nuclear deal in 2018, Israel, during that short few years, had, had largely refrained from sabotaging um, Iran's nuclear program. But before that, and again now, uh, Israel has stepped up its efforts to degrade and to delay Iran's nuclear progress including through sabotage and assassination of uh, nuclear scientists. You would remember Stuxnet, uh, the Stuxnet malware, which uh, was discovered or was first altered around 2010. This was a cyber malware which Israel and the US uh, during the Obama administration had um, jointly directed against Iran's centrifuge program, spinning centrifuges. And this was also the first known example of a cyber attack, an online attack causing actual damage offline in the physical realm. Israel has also um, repeatedly stressed its willingness to kinetically, to militarily uh, attack Iran's nuclear program if necessary. 
Israel, for instance, has bunker busters. These are bombs that penetrate deep underground, but it lacks, as far as I know at least, the most um, powerful type of bunker busters, which, the U which is the US-made uh, massive ordnance penetrators, weighing around 14 tons each. Uh, importantly, Israel also lacks the necessary aerial assets or aircraft to deliver such heavy armaments. Uh, hence, it would likely still require US cooperation in any kind of sustained military campaign against Iran if it seeks to damage these facilities that are deep underground. And these really are the key facilities like Matanz and, and uh, Fordo. So uh, while Israel has repeatedly warned that it is prepared to carry out a sustained military campaign against uh, Iran's nuclear program, it has so far an interim focus instead on sabotage and assassinations. Now, if you're wondering at this point, um, if Israel isn't the aggressor or belligerent here, the answer is that it takes, the short answer is that it takes two to tango. Why do I say that? Because Iran not only refuses to recognize Israel uh, and Israel's existence, but by the same token, it also has repeatedly threatened Israel with destruction. Now, Iran's leaders have gone to great lengths to emphasize that by this, by destruction, they mean the end of Israel as a political entity, not the physical destruction of um, Israel and its people. And how does Iran actually envisage an end to Israel's political existence? Uh, by having essentially all people living in present-day Israel and the Palestinian territories, so basically between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, by having them conduct a general referendum on, a state, on the fate of the state of Israel. Uh, Iran would then, as it were, accept whatever final decision that was issued. Uh, now, Iran has, however, also occasionally, or Iranian, uh, especially generals, have also occasionally threatened to destroy the Israeli, city, Israeli cities, including Tel Aviv uh, and Haifa. Uh, for instance, so while one might argue that Iran will probably not specifically use nuclear weapons against Israel, destroy Israel, Israel's leaders must take Iran's threats at face value, um, even if there is also domestic political benefit from doing so. We saw this letter, uh, for instance, in Benjamin Netanyahu's premiership, which lasted a dozen years until just this past uh, June. So um, still within this first arena of sabotage and assassinations, last November, Israel uh, finally assassinated uh, Mohsenif Ashlizadeh after reportedly surveilling him for around 14 years. Ashlizadeh was a general of the IRGC uh, or the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, and the extremely and was the extremely secretive head of the military component of Iran's nuclear program. Now, over the past many months, Israel is also alleged to have carried out sabotage attacks, uh, including twice at the Natanz uh, facility, Natanz enrichment, fuel enrichment plant, which is Iran's main nuclear enrichment plant. Uh, there was also a third attack uh, on a centrifuge parts, uh, parts uh, plant or factory in Karaj, which is a city just west of Tehran. Now, in the case of the Natanz attacks, uh, the first targeted an overground advanced centrifuge assembly area while the second attack, which occurred this April, um, targeted its main and backup power systems, which in turn reportedly caused damage to a large number of spinning centrifuges. You know what happens when centrifuges spin and they require power, and what happens when that power is disrupted. So this is the first arena, there's three more to go. In the second arena, uh, civil war Syria, 
for the greater part of last decade in order to prevent Iran from entrenching itself militarily on Israel's northern borders. Israel already has, by the way, the threat of uh, Hezbollah on its northern borders. So uh, Syria, Iran entrenching itself in Syria would extend that frontage along Israel's north and northeast. So in order to prevent that entrenchment, Israel has been carrying out regular and frequent airstrikes against Iranian or Iran-backed forces, uh, and specifically also to target the transfer of precision weaponry from um, Iran to Lebanese Hezbollah in particular. In more recent years, Israel has also begun targeting laboratories inside uh, Syrian territory. These are laboratories that work on improving the precision of missile or rocket arsenals. With very few exceptions, these airstrikes, Israeli airstrikes, do not typically elicit a response from Iran. It has on a couple of occasions, but they don't typically. Uh, separately, they have also triggered Syrian air defense missiles, air defense missiles that are supplied by Russia. Uh, two recently entered, accidentally entered Israeli airspace, though they did not cause casualties or damage. The third arena is uh, cyber warfare. This is the third arena of confrontation between Israel and Iran. Now, other than Stuxnet, which I mentioned earlier, uh, and which, by the way, Stuxnet was also the principal factor that spurred Iran into standing up its own cyber offensive capabilities, both countries, uh, Israel and Iran, whether through, including through uh, proxy and non-state uh, groups, continually target, I think pretty much on a daily basis, each other's cyber, cyber um, and online ecosystems, whether it's military, uh, commercial, uh, but also increasingly critical civilian infrastructure. There is, however, an asymmetry when it comes to the balance of cyber defense in particular, defense if not offense, while Iran has the capabilities to carry out, for instance, distributed denial of service attacks, disruption attacks, uh, espionage, phishing, offensive malware operations such as Wiper, uh, its cyber defenses are thought to be significantly weaker than those and underdeveloped compared to those of Israel's. Finally, uh, we move on to the fourth arena uh, where we've also got tit for tat maritime attacks, which were first reported uh, this past March by the Wall Street Journal and which had begun sometime in mid or late 2019. Remember that this was also a time back in 2019 when tensions in the Persian Gulf were rising significantly uh, and came to include multiple attacks uh, attributed to Iran, targeting commercial vessels and oil facilities. Um, Israel has reportedly carried out sabotage attacks on over 20 Iranian vessels, mostly commercial ones ferrying uh, crude oil to Syria and crude oil that's, that's uh, under US sanctions uh, and EU sanctions also when it comes to Syria, but also vessels thought to in some cases be ferrying weaponry. Um, Israel was also allegedly behind the attack on an Iranian naval vessel, not just commercial, but naval vessel in the Red Sea this April uh, and may or may not have been behind the sinking of the Kharq, which was uh, Iran's uh, largest naval logistics vessel near the Iranian port of Jask uh, two months later in June. Now in turn, especially after the media disclosure in March by the Wall Street Journal, Iran has also retaliated to public knowledge at least against several Israeli commercial vessels uh, around the Persian Gulf. The last known attack was, the, uh, was against the oil products tanker Mercer Street, that some of you might have heard of, uh, an attack which included multiple suicide UAVs uh, drones, for, and which for the first time in this maritime context at least, 
uh, actually involve fertilities, though those are fertilities of those fertilities involved a British and a Romanian citizen aboard the vessel. Now, um, Israel, like I mentioned right at the start, went through a change in government this past June for the first time in 12 years. Uh, uh, well, the government's changed over elections over the past years, but it changed prime ministers, importantly. But the current um, government's policy of pressure towards Iran and the axis of resistance that Iran needs has not changed, and in fact, may even intensify. Moreover, Iran itself has also undergone a change in government under the presidency of Ibrahim Raisi. Uh, and in Iran, the conservative hardliners now for the first time in, are in full control of all levers of elected and unelected power in the country. Even back in 2005, this wasn't exactly the case, but now they have got full control. Um, and the Raisi government looks set to deepen Iran's, deepen rather than scale back Iran's uh, regional influence. And of course, to strengthen everything that has got to do with the axis of resistance. Now, all that having been said, Iran regional policy, Iranian regional policy has in turn also facilitated areas uh, or avenues for cooperation between Israel and other regional powers, which is the next part of this lecture. Um, and this has most prominently assumed the shape of the, in the form of the Abraham Accords signed a year ago. Now these accords were only the culmination of a growing common front against Iran between uh, Israel and some of, it, of the region's Sunni monarchies in particular. Now, of course there were and are um, other motives behind these normalization agreements, including um, economic and tech cooperation, technological cooperation, and investments, particularly between Israel and the Gulf states, the GCC or Gulf Cooperation Council states, some of which like the UAE in particular, but to an extent also Saudi Arabia, uh, have already begun to diversify away from, the, uh, from their oil economies. But perceptions of a shared threat uh, posed by Iran also play an important part. What also likely played a part were perceptions of the US's gradually um, decreasing its military presence in the region. On the other hand, um, note that some of these Sunni-ruled Southern Gulf states, the GCC monarchies, have got Shia uh, communities susceptible to, to Iranian influence. In Bahrain, they are the majority. And in countries like the UAE in particular, uh, the UAE specifically is geographically on the front line, physically on the front line in the event of any kind of armed conflict with Iran. In addition, the economy of Dubai, just one single, one of the seven Emirates, uh, if not Abu Dhabi's, is very, very closely intertwined with that of Iran's, especially since it is also Iran's uh, leading re-export hub. Dubai would have lots to lose in the event of armed conflict with Iran. Israel earlier, um, already in the 1990s during the or since the Oslo Accords, the, the peace process with the Palestinians, uh, Israel already back then had some relations, or from then had some, some relations with some of these Sunni states, um, at least until around the start of the Second Intifada in 2000. Uh, and then subsequently also the, the uh, Operation Kaslet, uh, uh, Israel's first war with Gaza. But during that short initial period, we had countries like Qatar and Oman, uh, as well as Morocco and even Tunisia, uh, Tunisia, for instance, was where Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian leadership relocated for roughly 10 years after being forced to leave, uh, leave uh, civil war Beirut. So these countries all had some kind of representation or liaison office in Israel with Israel. For countries like Saudi Arabia, 
the threats increasingly being perceived from Iran. Uh, right now, you might have heard that there are talks ongoing and both uh, might perhaps reopen the, the, the embassies uh, in their respective countries. But for long, this threat, uh, Saudi, Saudi Arabia has perceived this threat as growing from, from Iran. And this was a threat that grew in particular for the Saudis after the US's 2003 invasion of Iraq, which toppled Saddam Hussein. Uh, that event unintentionally strengthened Iran by removing what was until then its main military uh, check or nemesis and regional counterbalancer. This perceived threat from Iran worsened from the onset of the Arab uprisings 10 years ago, when Iran appeared to be expanding uh, not only its influence, but also its military involvement and power, first in Syria, uh, from the start of Syria's civil war, and then subsequently in Iraq, and then Yemen. Then in 2016, uh, after Saudi Arabia executed a prominent Shia, uh, Saudi Shia cleric by the name of Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, Iranian protesters stormed and firebombed or, or firebombed the Saudi embassy in Tehran and its and the Saudi consulate in Mashhad, which was what led to the, to the um, uh, rupture of diplomatic relations until now. Both sides are trying to, to uh, perhaps repair these relations to some degree. Um, it also led back then to the rupture or downgrading of relations between Iran and several of Saudi's other allies and not just Saudi Arabia alone. After Mohammed bin Salman's rise as Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia's crown prince a few years ago, uh, when he was tapped to replace the previous crown prince, Mohammed bin Nayef, Israel-GCC ties uh, in particular further improved. Meanwhile, we had security and intelligence cooperation already underway, including through sales of Israeli um, security technologies and spyware to countries like the, UA, uh, the UAE and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. Now, true or not, there's also the perception that I mentioned earlier, there's also the perception of waning US commitment to the um, Gulf region. There's several indicators for this from the point of view of not just Israel, but also many of these Gulf countries. Um, first of all, we've got the ongoing US pivots for over the past decade or so since the Obama administration the pivot to Asia or the Indo-Pacific uh, to counter uh, China. We also have, secondly, the US's own shale revolution, has, uh, which has heavily reduced its dependence on foreign energy sources, including from the Persian Gulf. Number three, the US uh, back in the day when uh, was seen as having abandoned then Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak uh, in 2011 during Egypt's own uprising. Uh, and then additionally, when negotiations were taking place between 2013 to 2015, negotiations that led, with the JCP, uh, that led to the JCPOA, negotiations between Iran and the P5 plus one, the concerns of the Gulf states and, uh, and even Israel for that matter were not perceived to have been taken into consideration. Uh, the US subsequently under President Trump did not retaliate militarily in response to the attacks attributed to Iran uh, targeting Saudi Aramco facilities in, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia in uh, September 2019. And the Trump, as well as the, and now the, the Biden administration, have also accompanied um, US troop reductions or withdrawals uh, in Syria, in, in Iraq and Syria, and most recently Afghanistan, as well as the removal of Patriot missile batteries from Saudi Arabia. 
Um, now, these all together further strengthen, once again, whether true or not, but it do strengthen the perceptions of uh, US abandonment. We know that beyond the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, the four countries which, um, with which Israel reached this normalization accords, Israel uh, was also, had been, perhaps still is, in exploratory talks with a range of other Sunni Muslim governments. Now, besides Saudi Arabia, countries like Saudi Arabia and Oman, for instance, these also included um, countries like Indonesia, Mauritania, and Libya, or at least one of uh, Libya's governments. However, under the Biden administration, while Israel's um, current government under Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, and in principle, the Biden administration itself, both continue um, emphasizing the push for further normalization deals with Israel, Biden administration policy appears to have had a dampening effect, a cooling effect on the willingness of other Sunni powers to make this you know, uh, momentous decision. Perhaps also because of the absence of any kind of, of the kind of quid pro quos uh, that Trump had previously offered to these countries. The um, Arab uprisings, uh, that started 10 years ago were driven by domestic socio-economic grievances. Importantly, they also showed that the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was no longer the region's central issue. Last year's normalization agreements appear to have further um, marginalized the Palestinian issue, showing that Israeli-Palestinian peace is neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition for normalized ties between Israel and Muslim countries. But ultimately, uh, even if, for instance, the um, the Abraham Accords might have drawn attention away from and given the lie to the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict as the central organizing principle of the region's conflictual relations, the Palestinian issue cannot be ignored. And we saw this most potently in May, May of this year, for 11 uh, very intense days when Israel and Gaza fought their fourth major war uh, called Operation Guardian of the Walls in Israel and uh, or Operation Sword of Jerusalem by the Gazans. The good news for Israel is that this war, uh, the May war, uh, which was also the first real test for normalization, did not damage its relations with, the, with its Abraham Accord partners. On the other hand, under the current coalition of change government, which is co-led by uh, Prime Minister Nathalie Bennett and alternative uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid, Israel, I think, better appreciates the logic of strengthening the Palestinian Authority, not uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, but the separate Palestinian Authority uh, and its president, Mahmoud Abbas, in the West Bank, uh, and to strengthen them at the expense of Hamas in Gaza, even if uh, we do not expect any genuine revival of the peace process, uh, any kind of initiative by, by Israel's government, at least current government. Now, the current uh, Israeli coalition consists of eight parties from the left, from the center, from the right, and even for the first time, an Islamist faction, an Islamist Arab faction. Now, three of these uh, parties of the eight are right-wing, including Bennett's own party, Yamina, or rightwards, uh, Gidon Saar's New Hope, or Tikva Khadasha, and Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Betenu, or Israel Our Home. However, these factions, these right-wing factions, preference for uh, settlement expansion, and even annexation of the West Bank is ultimately mitigated by pushback from the other uh, constituents of the current coalition government, the others from the center, from the left, and of course, the Islamist Arab party as well. 
So even if settlement expansion and annexation do not occur during the tenure of this current government, uh, we don't expect a serious revival, of, as, as I've said, of the peace process uh, either. So um, let me conclude. The um, strategic setting that Israel has had to deal with um, has dramatically evolved over the past decades, since 1948. From existential wars in the beginning, uh, existential wars against massive Arab armies, many times its own military size, Israel now faces a different set of challenges. Uh, it's the Islamic Republic of Iran that is at the top of the list, uh, as well as the axis of resistance which it leads, uh, an axis that comprises, with the exception of Syria, the only state actor, uh, it comprises mostly non-state armed actors in multiple sites of contestation across the Middle East. But this competition, this geopolitical competition, also has had its benefits with coinciding interests leading to cooperation of an increasingly overt and institutionalized kind uh, with other regional Sunni Muslim partners. And along the way, the Palestinian issue has seemingly uh, lost its centrality and prominence. But again, having said all that, Israel cannot wish the Palestinians away either. That is another fact on the ground. And if there were to be a truly existential challenge, uh, not to say threats, once again facing Israel, the forms of political, well, once again facing Israel as a state and, its, and the forms of um, political and social organization that are specific to it, and as well as uh, its self-identity as a Jewish liberal democracy, it would probably be from this unresolved internal conflict rather than from anywhere else. Thank you so much, uh, Kevin. Uh, it was a real broad canvas on which you have portrayed uh, the entire uh, uh, story of Israel from all its perspective. And uh, uh, I was just looking at uh, the title, uh, Israel more than just Palestine. I think uh, even the next phase, Israel more than just Iran, it has crossed that phase also after the Abraham Accords. So it has actually uh, crossed that Rubicon. And uh, under that context, uh, we have uh, quite a few questions already come up, uh, but uh, taking the liberty of moderator, let me just first ask you one uh, conceptual uh, question because it is linked to uh, uh, the, the paradigm of small states. How do they really strive to uh, stay relevant? You have uh, talked extensively about the security imperatives of Israel. So what exactly would you, uh, I mean, if you could uh, summarize in bullet points, what exactly are those traits which make uh, Israel relevant uh, despite being small in the world arena? So maybe if you could start with that, please. I think there are several, thanks for the question. Also. I think there are several things playing to Israel's advantage. Israel is a country that's barely bigger uh, in population than Singapore, uh, barely bigger really. And uh, with a territory not much bigger, I mean, bigger, obviously, but still really small compared to what I was talking about as this, this the bigger regional, uh, well, the bigger Middle East, it's really just a drop in there. But Israel has several advantages. And one of these uh, is high tech. Israel really leads uh, in, on uh, many indices in, in technological development in startups. It's called the Startup Nation. Uh, many of you would have heard this, uh, of this epithet. Uh, it's a strong cyber power, uh, certainly when compared to Iran. It's got a lot to offer 
in terms of cybersecurity, for better or for worse, some of you might have heard also the uh, cooperation involving uh, with the UAE, involving NSO, an Israeli company, the Pegasus uh, spyware, for instance. So these are things that are dual used uh, to a very large extent. It can be used for good. It can be uh, abused as well for, for these client states, for the states that are purchasing these sort of technologies from Israel. Uh, Israel, it's not just high-tech, not just computer IT high-tech, but also high-tech across a wide suite of other sectors. Agrotech is one big, big point. And one of the things that the UAE, for another desert country, uh, hopes to develop with um, Israel is in agro, agri-tech. Um, we're talking about making the desert bloom uh, to abuse you know, a, a trope, an old trope, but also basically to, to be able to be self-sufficient or come close to self-sufficiency in agriculture in a desert environment, uh, something that Israel has been able to, to uh, contribute to uh, over the past decades. Um, we have, um, Israel's a small country, it's got a very strong relationship with the US. Now it's a relationship that uh, might have been, uh, uh, they might have undergone you know, fluctuations during, well, with the Democrats now in power. Uh, you saw recently what happened in the Iron Dome uh, bill as well, the bill to support to finance the Iron Dome in Congress. So it's had its uh, fair share of fluctuations, uh, but it's still a relationship that moving forward is uh, robust and very robust. Uh, and that's one of the things, in fact, that since I'm talking about this, that some countries, I don't know if it's all the all these Muslim countries, but some of these countries at least have sought to leverage on Israel's close relationship with the White House to, you know, to, to improve their own relations with the, with, the, with the US, right? So it's superpower patronage, it's own tech developments, it's, um, uh, it's got a strong military, uh, and this is no secret, obviously. I mean, Israel also has uh, military exports. Um, most recently, you might recall the, the last war, the second Nagorno-Karabakh war, we've now reached its one year anniversary. There was a war that, um, to which Israel had over the years, not during the war itself, but over the past many years, contributed to uh, significantly as well in terms of sales of UAVs, drones, to Azerbaijan, even though Israel now also has relations with Armenia. Um, uh, Israel, you know, um, uh, is also a country that's, that's very small, but it's, uh, it's made its mark on, on, it's now an energy, uh, I don't want to say superpower, but since over the past decade or so, since, it discovered these large, you know, um, gas natural gas deposits in the Medi in the eastern Mediterranean. It's also become an important gas player and part of the eastern Mediterranean uh, gas forum, and also now a kind of conduit for the UAE, hoping to pipe uh, energy through Israel uh, to the Europeans, for instance. So there's several things playing to Israel's advantage. These are just some advance, uh, just some uh, examples. Thank you so much, uh, Kevin. Uh, we have uh, one question uh, from the floor, uh, again, uh, on that uh, positive note. Uncle um, um, uh, Gupta asks, uh, we often hear of Iran, Turkey, and Saudi as middle powers aspiring to broaden and deepen their influence in the Middle East. Uh, what is Israel's real aspiration as a player in the Middle East, uh, besides staving off existential threats? So if you could answer that. That's an excellent question. So for a long time, I think now things have slightly changed, but for a long time, um, you know, Israel proved itself to be really the leading uh, military power in the region. And certainly after 1967 war in 1973, when it beat back Egypt and Syria, which were really back then the two leading Arab uh, protagonists. Um, but then 
alongside this military strength, Israel didn't really have the, the hearts and minds, so to speak, of the region. And for a long time, you had this uh, iron walls, these iron curtains between Arab or Muslim communities more generally, most Muslim communities in the Middle East, not all of them, but especially the Arabs, between the Arabs on the one hand and Israel on the other, so much so that you didn't really get interaction uh, between both sides. Uh, and for those many long decades, I think what Israel, apart from really trying to survive and to, uh, to, to attain um, qualitative superiority, which is what I was talking about, uh, it did not really strive to reach out. Well, it did strive to, through diplomatic relations to, to establish ties, of course, with, with all the, uh, what I mentioned to the periphery, the periphery, periphery doctrine, uh, but also other actors, but it did not or was not able to effectively, effectively reach out to the broader audience, the Arab street first and foremost. Uh, this time, Iran was not an enemy, but the Arabs, the Arab countries were. Uh, now that has sort of changed, right, over the decades. And this ties in, I think, also really closely to what I was just saying in my previous point about Israel's development as a tech power, not just a tech power, but on multiple fronts in, in water, in irrigation, things like that, that many countries in similar climatic environments would really benefit from. Uh, and, you know, there are, uh, and on the Arab street today, and I'm not just talking about the countries that have signed a normalization deals with Israel, the, the UAE, Bahrain, and all that. But increasingly, still a trickle, I think, but increasingly, if you look at the social media of even countries like Iraq, you do get occasionally um, references to how, you know, not only should they normalize relations with Israel, but come on, Israel, we should normalize relations with Israel also because Israel has a lot of things that, can, that we can benefit from. Well, that we can, uh, you know, we can benefit both ways. It's just not one way, of, not, not, not just one way, of course. So I think that has sort of changed on that front. And in that sense, I don't know if I would call that uh, Israel having the hearts and minds, one of the hearts and minds of the, of the Arab or the Muslim street in the Middle East, but it's changed uh, that balance is sort of tilted in Israel's favor. So it's not just about let's just normalize relations with Israel, but let's just also do so because um, there are things that you know, we can actually emulate Israel on. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, we have, we have uh, uh, a few questions, quite a few questions from Dr. Abhishek. So uh, just uh, taking thematically, I would uh, uh, add uh, two of his questions uh, to what you have just said. Uh, uh, he asked broadly, what are the sources of power for Israel and where does its economic revenue, revenue come from? Uh, what countries help Israel, uh, Israel strengthen its military and cyber capacity? Uh, one allied question from again Dr. Bishek is, other than the neighbors and Middle East, what foreign policy objectives does Israel share with China and Russia? So if you could answer those questions. That's a, that's a double double barrel question. I, I might forget some of these questions, but let me uh, try and address them as they come. Um, Israel's sources of power and its economic, the economic sectors from which it draws its power. So let me start with the economy. Uh, and this really came out in full relief during the pandemic. Uh, well, when it was in full swing last year. Uh, and this is the tech sector. So you had tourism and, you know, these other sectors already going down. Well, tourism, uh, you're not going to call tourism a source of power, for, national power for, for any country, I think. Um, but uh, technology sales, high tech, and, and I'm talking about all sorts of high tech, not just IT type of high tech, but agro, everything else, everything else, medical technology, for instance, sales really grew and led in economic growth. 
And I think that sort of is indicative of the sort of economic resilience that Israel has. A lot of this economic strength, you have, you have obviously a strong military um, industrial complex here, uh, but you also have civilian uh, industrial, civilian tech, not just military tech. And, um, and um, when it comes to um, uh, sources of power, there were three things that I mentioned earlier during the lecture uh, in terms of Israel's standing geopolitical power or influence. So uh, you've got its supersized uh, military and by supersized, I don't mean large in absolute terms, but large as a proportion of its population, right? It's a citizen, it's a, it's a uh, citizenry at arms. Uh, there is universal drafts. You don't often see universal draft in a lot of countries that include, uh, uh, that includes women. You, secondly, you have this uh, superpower patronage, which is a very important thing. And it has also, this specific patronage has also contributed to the other question about cyber and military capabilities. Uh, I'll touch on this uh, briefly after this. And then the third thing is, of course, Israel's technological age. It's not just uh, the alleged nuclear arsenal. I mean, you can't really ultimately do much with a nuclear arsenal. It's good to deter, but you can't really, uh, you know, capitalize on that to, to sort of shape uh, other aspects of the environment. Um, but these three things together, uh, Israel's growing raft of relationships as well uh, through the normalization accords, but really strong, even beyond and under the normalization accords, really strong cooperation, uh, security cooperation, uh, intelligence cooperation. Israel, for instance, has got really good ties with some of the GCC countries, not all. Uh, it doesn't really have good ties with uh, or close ties with Kuwait, for instance. Um, but some of the others, yes, and with countries around uh, Iran's vicinity, Azerbaijan, with the Iraqi Kurds, uh, Israel also has diplomatic relations with Turkmenistan, which is another border, another country that sits on Iran's border. Um, and just on the point on Israel's uh, development of Israeli power, so the US's role has really been, I think, crucial in this aspect. Now, Israel's military industrial complex has over the years, of course, produced a raft of different platforms, military platforms. Um, but more importantly, it's also been able to benefit from, especially since uh, over the past many years after the, the Israel's own peace accords with Egypt and then Jordan, uh, from an annual, you know, roughly 3 billion USD in credits. This is not cash that Israel uh, gets to buy goodies, but mainly that it gets to buy American um, military outputs, military uh, equipment and platforms, which it has also done. Uh, the US has also, not just the US, but heavily the US has also over the years financed the development of defensive platforms like the Iron Dome, um, the Iron Dome system, which intercepts incoming rockets uh, inside Israel. Um, and in terms of cyber development, for instance, now Israel isn't technically a first-tier cyber power. It is it leads on many indices, but it's not technically a first-tier cyber power. If you look at indices that are put up by the IISS or the CSIS, for instance, uh, but um, it does have very strong cyber cooperation. And a part of this is also, a lot of this is indigenous coming from Israel's own uh, tech sector, civilian and military tech sector. But a lot of that also has uh, perforce to do with cooperation with the US, with partners like the US, the UK, France. Um, and then on the last question on, on China, uh, I, I don't really remember. There was a last question on China. Could you yeah, Russia, Russia, Russia and China. Uh, I mean, how are they aligned with these two countries? Uh, what, are, what is the nature of cooperation between Israel and these two countries? 
so it's a very uh, it's a very um, pragmatic cooperation, uh, and it's one that continues to hold water. Let me start on Russia. So Russia, with the current turnover in government, with Naftali Bennett now uh, prime minister, there was a bit of chatter here in Israeli media about how uh, the personal relations between uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, outgoing and former Israeli prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu have now been sort of degraded at the level of bilateral relations between both countries, just because you don't have that direct phone call sort of set up in place. And that uh, Bennett probably doesn't have the same kind or doesn't have the same kind of warm ties. He has personal ties with uh, Putin. Um, but cooperation continues. And this we see most prominently in Syria. And this is a very pragmatic form of cooperation, a lot of deconfliction mechanisms so that they don't accidentally kill each other's or strike each other's forces. There, were, there was one, at least one uh, accident sometime back when, an, when a Russian, uh, when involving the Russian casualties, military casualties. Um, but with Russia, it's mainly been on that or very prominently on that. So in that sense, in Syria, while Iran seeks to continue to entrench its military presence and Russia sort of plays along with that, Russia really is the one that calls the shots in Syria. And it's given Israel uh, space, so to speak, to do what it needs to do uh, to a certain extent. Israel, Israeli airstrikes continue pretty frequently. They take place uh, typically at night. Uh, but with Russian deconfliction mechanisms, you know, they, they strike what they need to strike and not Russian forces. Um, but on other fronts, there are, there are tensions, of course. And this also ties in with Israel's own relations to China, which are really, really interesting. And why is that the case? So under the Netanyahu period, over the past 12 years, what we've seen is Israel um, uh, really, uh, how should I put it, improving its commercial trade with China and essentially allowing Chinese investments deep into Israel, uh, Israel, Israel's economic sectors, including its tech sector, which is, which is sensitive. Uh, the previous government was very open, it was very uh, China-friendly, you know, um, uh, accords and, and agreements that were signed in tech cooperation as well, that also back then involved uh, uh, Vice uh, President Wang Cixan, China's Vice, Pre uh, Vice uh, President, uh, which indicated the, the importance attributed by China to this tech cooperation in Israel. Now, both countries do not have what the Chinese call a comprehensive uh, strategic uh, partnership, a CSP, right? They've got a slightly different thing that's very focused on technology. China, on the other hand, has got these CSPs with a growing number of countries, including Iran, uh, but also Saudi Arabia, Algeria, uh, and China's. Um, and so they haven't, both sides haven't signed that sort of uh, strategic agreement. Um, and the, I suppose the bigger issue here is also one that involves the US, because over the years, because of Israel's willingness to allow the Chinese to lease critical infrastructure here, to build critical infrastructure. I'm in Tel Aviv and Tel Aviv's, uh, there are several branches, one or maybe a couple of branches of uh, spurs of the, the light rail that are, uh, have been built and are being built by Chinese uh, state-owned firms, state-owned companies, SOEs. You have Chinese firms now, as of the beginning of this month, on the 1st of September, taking over or beginning uh, a 25-year lease at Haifa ports. Haifa and Ashdod are two of Israel's key import, commercial import gateways. And the Chinese are building, about to complete a port segment in the other port as well, in, in uh, Ashdod. So the Chinese are net deep uh, in that sense in Israel's 
infrastructure uh, and investments, economy, China has also sought to buy up, uh, for instance, one, uh, several entities, economic firms and interests, uh, concerns in Israel, uh, several of them were blocked. One of them involved, for instance, uh, a big insurance company, but some of them also uh, went through, were approved, like the acquisition of a, of a major food producer. Uh, and this has got a lot to do with food security in Israel because it's an Israeli firm producing for Israeli, when Israeli clientele. Now, um, Israel has for the past years found itself between uh, the US and China. So the US under the Trump administration, but now also uh, in the Biden era, putting pressure on Israel to basically not end its ties with China, but to, uh, to, to be more circumspect, right? To be more sensitive uh, with regards to China and not allow Chinese firms, especially firms, especially because a lot of these firms have got ties with the, uh, with the Chinese government, even if they are in the private sector, technically speaking. Uh, so the U.S. has put quite a bit of pressure on Israel to not um, uh, to sort of dilute that sort of relationship with China. But all in, once again, on Russia and China, it's a relationship that's uh, that's going to continue. China, yes, during the May War, some of you might have heard China issued, uh, denounced basically, you know, Israel uh, when Israel was carrying out airstrikes against Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad targets inside uh, Gaza. And that was uh, in large part also to do with, you know, China has its own issues with the US and one of them is the Uyghur uh, question. So there's lots of interplay here, but all in, I think it's, it's a relationship that has got its sensitivities, but it's, uh, it's a very pragmatic working relationship that we think will continue. Uh, thank you, uh, Kevin. Uh, just uh, I, when we talk about China, you know, more answers, uh, generate more questions. In that context, uh, Thomas Chan, uh, who has asked uh, again uh, many questions, but uh, this uh, one particular aspect of uh, his questionnaire is linked to what you have just said. And uh, he says that uh, he asked, you mentioned uh, cyber warfare in that context. Recently, China instigated the cyber attacks against Israeli infrastructure and services. Uh, what, why, and what does the CCP hope to achieve? So, if you could. The, what was reported in that recent attack was only uh, the first that was reported with such prominence. On a daily, maybe weekly basis, you do, we, we do have continual cyber attacks from a score of different countries, including China. So, so we do know that, and these, this is a conclusion that's been put out by Israeli cybersecurity firms. Um, it's hard in cyber, in cyberspace, we have this attribution problem. So it's hard to conclusively pin down uh, responsibility to an actor, but what you can tell with high confidence based on past modus operandi um, and by just basically deconstructing the code and to see if it's been used in similar attacks by similar countries or, or outfits backed by these countries. So that was different in terms of its prominence. Um, but Chinese hackers, I don't know if these are state-backed or not, uh, potentially could be, have long been carrying out this sort of attacks. Uh, and I think even as we speak right now, just a lot of these are not reported, a lot of these do not go into the, into the uh, open media, but they, they do occur very, very frequently. Thank you. And I think at this juncture, we have quite a few questions on uh... Uh, that uh, spyware, uh, you know, linked to Israel. So uh, if you could uh, draw some light, uh, this Pegasus, uh, how exactly uh, the issues 
as such and the companies involved in israel uh, how exactly uh, do uh, how do they impact overall power of israel in the realm of real expertise that it has over the globe and there are many many questions including uh, from dr abhishek so if you could answer in one word thank you well, Israeli spyware, Israel is not just about um, cyber offenses, its offensive capabilities, but also its defensive ones. And, defensive ones. and I think um, this is something that's going to be moving forward increasingly important because you, couldn't, you can attack somebody, but if you don't have the capability to defend your, to defend your own cyber ecosystems, you, right, you, you're just basically vulnerable. So uh, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is for surveillance. Um, and... So the NSO affair, uh, Pegasus spyware, to the extent of my understanding at least, was essentially initially given out with the understanding that these client countries, including the UAE, would, de would um, deploy them against terrorism, terrorism threats. We know that the UAE has got a very strong surveillance system, so terrorist, it, is, it has the ability to avert, prevent, uh, foil, thwart, you know, brewing terrorist threats and the like. Um, so that was the initial understanding. When this affair sort of blew up over recent weeks, Israel's uh, government um, began an investigation into you know, the parameters of this understanding of this, of this, of this acquisition or this sale, basically, uh, to try and understand if uh, the Israeli side of things, if the Israeli firms involved, uh, it's not just NSO, there, there are also other companies that are involved in in um, selling uh, similar types of technologies and not just to the UAE, by the way, also to Saudi Arabia, uh, whether these had uh, observed their duty of care, so to speak, if they had done their due diligence just to ensure that these sort of technologies would not be abused by uh, client countries. Um, that I don't know what the outcome of that investigation is. It's, it's been quiet since then. This, this was about maybe five, four or five weeks back. Um, but on the question of how this uh, buttresses Israel's power, if I understood correctly, so th there is also, uh, it's also something that was used, for instance, by Morocco. Uh, there was this, something of a scandal here when I think, apparently I'm not entirely clear on the details, when the government, uh, you know, was listening in also on the king's uh, private correspondences or something. There was, there was something along those lines. I don't remember exactly. Uh, but these countries that are increasingly, uh, well, these are monarchies, right? These are the main monarchies that, that remain as they are since the Arab uprising. So they are the status quo powers within the Sunni space in the Middle East. Uh, and they have, an, they have a strong interest in maintaining their status quo. And, and in order to do that, part of the requirement is, to, is, is a regime, a regime uh, a pr protection. Um, and so these things do come into play, these sort of technologies. And I mean, for them looking at Israel, uh, you have countries that are, I wanna be fair here, uh, in the sense that Israel is a very pragmatic country. It sells, yes, it sells weaponry. There's no secret here. It sells weaponry to all sorts. It, in the past also sold weaponry to, to Myanmar, to, to Myanmar's military uh, uh, leadership. So um, uh, the, Israel sold these uh, things and for Israel, the main consideration is, of course, a strategic one. It's also a commercial one, obviously, because these are big and uh, pretty lucrative uh, deals. Uh, but for these countries, you have this Middle Eastern country very close by that is willing to sell this sort of um, technology. 
that perhaps other Western liberal democracies with similar cap uh, capabilities are not so willing to sell, like the US, right? So you have this open portal here, uh, something that we can rely on under the radar and moving forward increasingly uh, in the open as well. So in that sense, I think it's um, it's uh, it's a it's um, it's something that works to Israel's in Israel's favor. It's got something to offer, but once again, it's not. Um, I mean, the U.S. itself, for instance, has relations with a country like Saudi Arabia, right? So you've got that, that raises ethical questions. Is it right for the U.S. to be working so closely with countries like Saudi Arabia or Pakistan? So Israel has that similar sort of. Uh, it, it may have to grapple with similar questions, but it's it's not such a big, not such a prominent issue here. Uh, and in that sense, I think it's, it's also a source of strength because it's willing to work with anyone uh, that is willing to work with it. Uh, thank you so much. And I think uh, we have next question uh, from Alfin Febrin Basundaro. He was a bit skeptical whether he is asking the right question, but I think you have just covered an aspect of what he has asked. His question is, is the survival-based foreign policy also influenced the mentality of Israel society to emphasize this survival aspect? That means uh, turning uh, Bane into boom. One allied question, uh, we could just cover that as well. Is the normalization of relationship between Israel and several Gulf monarchs also related to energy issues? So uh, if you could answer these two questions from Alfie. Sure. Um, the, first, um, the first question, if I, answered, if I understood correctly, it's whether Israel still has this survival mentality. Was that the uh, How is it trying to convert that weakness or the problem into a strength? You know, yeah, I of course, related to its existence problem. Yeah, those issues. Okay. Mm -hmm. let, me start, let me start the second question, this is more fresh. Um, it, so Israel itself is a gas power, has become a gas power over the past years, over the past 10 years. And it's uh, monetizing, it's exploiting, it's, it's exploiting, it's, it's exporting, it sells gas to Jordan, to, uh, to Egypt and onwards. So there was this uh, aspiration by several countries to also pipe gas onwards to Europe, starting with Greece and then Italy. Um, the, in terms of energy, Israel, like I mentioned earlier, is also a land bridge of sorts. So the UAE now wants to pipe, is piping uh, energy through a pipeline that has existed since the Shah's time, right? But it's been uh, repurposed, uh, revived and repurposed for the, for the, for the aims of piping uh, UAE energy uh, towards the, towards uh, Europe as well, and potentially also in the other direction, it goes both ways. Um, but uh, I mean, look, Israel uh, for oil, Israel buys, continues uh, buying its oil, but continues importing oil, of course, and some of its big, uh, big suppliers are countries like Azerbaijan, which, uh, which is why, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting bilateral relationship as well. Azerbaijan for a while, I think it's still the case. I don't really, I haven't checked lately. Uh, was really the, the the had the lion's share of Israel's uh, oil imports. You had countries like Kazakhstan as well. Uh, both are Muslim countries. Uh, Azerbaijan is also a Shia country, but a but a secular one. So um, in that sense, I yes, I, I think that there is uh, certainly scope for energy cooperation, not just in terms of direct imports into Israel's own uh, industry and and economy, but also with Israel as a transit point. Now on the first question, uh, turning that siege mentality, that survival uh, mentality into a strength. So 
it's often remarked that um, Israel's garrison state sort of mentality has got a lot to do with the Holocaust, right? Um, in a sense, yes, the, the Holocaust is, a, is something that's frequently, that's repeatedly uh, mentioned when uh, Israeli leaders talk about the potential destruction of Israel by countries like uh, Iran. They frequently invoke the, the Holocaust, uh, but often also for more emotional purposes. The Holocaust wasn't the reason uh, that Israel was established. Israel was already on its way to becoming a state. The Holocaust merely gave it the last push, historically speaking. Uh, but turning that into strength is something that Israel really, if there is an Israel Inc., it is that, right? It's basically the whole transition that I've talked about, initially a very strongly security-oriented one that has now also come to cover broad uh, segments of the economy with tech first and foremost. Uh, Israel, like I said, although it may not uh, really wield that much influence among hearts and minds in the region, maybe increasingly so, but not compared to, to some other countries, it's still, um, you know, in terms of hard power, uh, if you're talking about strength, that's hard power, right? It's, it certainly has been able to parlay that into, it, it basically, it's, it doesn't face a survival situation today. And when we, in, when in Israel, when they talk about uh, Iran uh, potentially posing a, uh, uh, an existential threat, I hate this word, existential threat, they, I don't think that many of Israel's leaders or its security uh, leadership for that matter, truly believe that Iran will use that to destroy Israel. But like I said during the lecture, it's something that they cannot play with. It's something that they just have to take at uh, face value. But taking that aside, because Iran hasn't gotten a, a nuclear weapon yet. So as of now, I think Israel's in a pretty strong position in that sense. Uh, it's, you have countries seeking to emulate it, seeking to, to uh, learn from, uh, from it. Singapore's military, this is also no secret, obviously, uh, was set up and, and really formed uh, to a large extent by Israel's own uh, and its own experience, uh, military experiences. So that, in that sense, it has Israel as an entire project itself has uh, become its strength today, and that's its branding as well. Uh, sure, thank you so much. Uh, and linked to that, again, a uh, couple of questions talk, uh, asked by Dr. Abhishek. In the same context of turning your weakness into strength, what domestic, political, social, religious conflicts and fractures uh, does Israel face? How does that impact its foreign policy stance? And has Israel been able to translate these acts of show of power with Iran into favorable policies or agreements in order to further its own domestic objectives? So it's actually the interplay between uh, foreign policy and domestic politics and uh, the internal society of uh, Israel, whether it capitalizes on these issues to uh, strengthen itself uh, domestically and internationally, if you could answer that. Well, uh, with a broad brush stroke, Israel's, um, a lot of Israel's domestic policy, a lot of Israel's foreign policy, rather, when it comes to Iran specifically, not in general, but when it comes to uh, perceived threats uh, like Iran and, and its whole axis of resistance, it's not something that changes with government. It's not something that's really mitigated or exacerbated by uh, domestic divisions. On domestic divisions, there are a lot of things here that are problematic. Uh, one of the things that sticks out uh, and it sticks out freshly is also because it occurred in May, 
when the rockets started flying and, S and airstrikes and Israel responded to airstrikes in Gaza, um, one of the side effects of that exchange was the series of riots inside Israel that was really uh, of, of deep concern to, to Israelis because it was something that hadn't been seen since, it was common in, in the years leading up to the establishment of the state of Israel, the 20s, 30s, 40s, you had lynchers and rioting uh, Jews, Arabs, Arabs, Jews, but not really, it hasn't really been seen uh, over the past decades and it resurfaced, right? And in large parts, uh, well, basically what happened for, for the benefit of those who aren't familiar with what happened, uh, you had initially um, Arabs, Arab youth mainly, um, taking to the streets and seeking to lynch or target individuals or businesses believed to belong to the other side. Sometimes they were wrong and actually targeted their own. But targeting Jews or targeting businesses, small businesses uh, that are owned by, by Jewish Israelis. Um, and then a couple of days later, you had the you had Jewish, basically the, the Jewish counterparts responding and targeting Arabs. And this really happened mainly in cities that have got mixed populations. You don't have a lot of these here, but you have one that is just four kilometers from where I live in Jaffa. You have one, and then you have the big one in Haifa, uh, up in the north. You have also a couple of very uh, in, important ones not far from here either, near the international airport, uh, cities that are called Ramleh and, and Lod, and a couple of other locations in the north as well, wherever you have this uh, this uh, uh, contact points between Jews and, and Arabs living cl in close vicinity of each other, it happened. Uh, it was really worrying because ultimately, if you've got rockets and airstrikes or rockets for those in Israel, it's heavily mitigated by the Iron Dome system. Uh, you do get rockets coming through. But the rioting bit was of big concern because no, I think no one expected it. And it was not only unexpected, but um, I mean, Israeli security forces took a while to respond. I think they were also taken aback. When they eventually did respond, uh, things were brought under control. The war lasted 11 days. They sort of, you know, started getting things into action midway um, at the fourth, fifth, sixth day mark. Um, but um, that was and is indicative, for instance, of one of the very big fissures in Israeli society. And this is only one of them between the Jews and Arabs. The, the riots were enabled in large part, I think, and triggered in large part, or in part because of incitement from Hamas, but in part also stemming from internal grievances linked to uh, perceptions that, the, that Israel's government, successive governments, have never really invested in the Arabs, in the Arab communities in Israel. Uh, they've never really bothered to fight crime. You've got some of the highest crime and violent crime and murder rates uh, within uh, Arab communities that, is, that Israel's uh, Israeli enforcement, law enforcement uh, authorities have simply not been able to get a hold on or have perhaps not uh, been very willing to get a, a hold on because this is within, these are within Arab, uh, among the Arabs themselves. So this was, they sort of fed into these grievances. Uh, and, and then uh, you have also other really big fishes. This is only one of them. The other one is within Israeli society itself. But in Israeli society, Israel really is a very fascinating um, social science laboratory uh, of a country, an example of a country with multiple fissures, crisscrossed by multiple fissures that are still holding. Uh, some believe because it's due to the existence of external threats. Uh, but, you know, time will tell. And you have fissures, for instance, between the religious, um, the religious, religious Jews and uh, secular Jews. 
uh, and by religious, you have gradations. You have also the ultra-Orthodox at, some, at the extreme end. You have also ultra-Orthodox Jews that do not recognize Israel's, uh, Israel's um, legitimacy, pretty much like the Iranians. Um, and so you have this sort of uh, uh, fissures that are not just ideological, but they also boil down to bread and butter issues. And by, th by that, I mean, for instance, if you, you have the government over the past decades financing many of these uh, ultra-Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox men do not work in the sense that we understand. They pray and they read Torah or the Talmud, right? The Jewish scriptures. And for them, that's work because for them, prayer for the state of Israel, for the people of Israel is more important or at least at the very least as important as people doing work or, or serving in the military. So the government has to keep them, keep them, uh, keep these orthodox on side, and also to secure their, their political support. The, they have political representation, of course, uh, though not in the current government. Uh, has been financing uh, scholarships, has been financing these studies for orthodox men. Uh, so a lot of taxes, a chunk of taxes that Israelis pay, all go to that, and of course to the to defense uh, requirements. The Israelis that are just really not um, very happy with that, have not been happy with that for a long time. Israel is a very expensive country to live in. Tel Aviv is one of the most expensive cities uh, on earth. In some ways, if you compare it to Singapore, while well, Singapore, you have cars and real estate that might be among the highest in the world. If you look at other things, going out to eat in a restaurant, or just buying cheese or you know, everyday products are, are really, really expensive and more expensive than in Europe and in the US. In fact, it's gotten to a point where the things that are made in Israel, Israeli products, blue and white, so to speak, that sell at higher cost here in Israel than in the US. Think about that. So uh, that has its knock-on and trickle-down effects from, from the government basically rerouting a lot of these of its budget to some of these sectors. Uh, and th there is a perception here that some of this high cost of living is also linked ultimately to... to to these uh, budgetary decisions. So there are, there are a lot of uh, fissures here. Uh, these are a couple of very prominent um, examples. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Kevin. Uh, one uh, last question in this segment. After that, we can talk about our own region, Indonesia and Malaysia, how Israel has its relationship. Just one last bit. Uh, my colleague, Clemens, uh, Clemens Che, asked, on the subject of the Abraham Accords, there has been a lot of coverage on the sentiments of the Arab street, but based on your experience or interactions, what are the public sentiment and concern in Israel itself? I think if you could answer that. So the two things that, uh, that come to mind right now, on the one hand, um, I think Israelis as a whole are, are really enthusiastic by, have been enthused by, by you know, the Abraham Accords you go through the city and you get huge hoardings. Uh, today, not today, but right now is you know, the, the, one year, the, the, one year, the first year anniversary of the Abraham Accords. So you have things written in Arabic, as well as in Hebrew, but also in Arabic, saying you know, the UAE in Israel, basically very, uh, very, very, um, a lot of pro, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, UAE sort of, uh, Bahrain to lesser extent, but the UAE really is the big one that stands out here. And a lot of Israelis are very enthusiastic about these Abraham Accords. The very, uh, they, there is no history of warfare once, uh, first of all, so that, that, which is why these are called normalization accords rather than peace accords, right? Um, and there are, uh, Israel has been close to tourism until recently. Now it's only open to group 
uh, tourism, but the other, but Israelis have traveled to, to Dubai, especially in Abu Dhabi, uh, to Bahrain, maybe to a lesser extent. Uh, over the past many months, uh, tens of thousands of Israelis have traveled to, to, to the UAE. So there's a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, Israel, and it's not just at the elite level, at the level of the commercial or political or defense elite, I'm talking about everyday Israelis. Um, and also with countries like Morocco, there is, uh, many of you might know that there is a very, in fact, Israel's, I think, single largest, single, maybe second single largest uh, ethnic uh, Jewish ethnicity is Moroccan. It, it's massive. Uh, many of my neighbors are Moroccans, for instance, of origin, of Moroccan origin. And so uh, Israelis have been, traditionally have been able to travel to Morocco just uh, indirectly. And now we have direct flights to Marrakesh, to, to Casablanca. And it's a great thing. So the, again, that sort of strengthens this whole thing. When it comes to um, concerns, there is one concern, uh, certainly one concern here, and that's got, to do with the, that's got to do with environment concerns. I spoke earlier about the, the UAE piping energy uh, with tankers to, uh, through Israel and then onward to the West. So um, the, these tankers uh, come, from Persian Gulf around Bab el Mandeb Strait into the Red Sea to the Israeli part of Eilat, right in the south of Israel. Um, the concern here among environmentalists, uh, environmental activists, is that uh, if we assume a very high volume of tanker traffic, uh, I think both sides now are looking at about 30 tankers per year, and the government wants to reduce that to six tankers per year or something like that. Uh, there are environmental concerns here, firstly because it destroys, it can destroy the coral life, but also because other than potential spillage at sea, the pipeline itself uh, that goes overland from the southern port city of Ilat to Ashkelon, where it is then piped onward through the Mediterranean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an all and rickety, well, in, in some parts at least, pipeline, right, that has existed for decades. And we've had instances of spillage in the past, uh, especially across the, the southern desert areas, spillage that has, that have, spillages that have caused environmental problems, killing of wildlife, large, massive uh, spillage of tar, really heavy bitumen-like tar around. Um, so that's one particular concern. Um, I don't really think, well, it's not prominent at least. Uh, another potential concern could be what happens if, are, are we allowing the UAE to really, uh, mm, to, to really buy up a lot of Israeli economy in the way that China, for instance, has been doing. Uh, and for instance, the UAE, uh, Mubadala, uh, this, this investment firm, its, its energy arm recently acquired a percentage of uh, one of Israel's uh, concessions, offshore gas concessions, uh, a minority percentage, but still a, a large one. And um, there are, moving forward there, would probably be similar sorts of concerns when you're talking about a country that right now is very forward-looking, yes, uh, and it's very willing to work with Israel, but intentions change. Look at Iran. Iran was a really good friend of Israel. Look at Turkey during the Kemalist period. They were good friends of Israel, and, and now Turkey and Iran, uh, you know, Iran specifically has, is Israel's arch nemesis, and Turkey is, although they still have relations, it's really uh, not far behind in some respects. Um, so, so there might be some concerns. It's not something that's really voiced out here because right now I think we're still in this, this period of exuberance. Um, but moving forward, I would expect, you know, the, the more that the UAE starts to invest and to buy up these really economic concerns, the UAE has apparently pledged to, to invest some 10 billion 
uh, that gas concession that I just spoke of was valued at about 1 billion. And there are other things as well. Uh, th this could rouse, this could uh, provoke further questions. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Kevin. Uh, the questions, uh, and I think you're quite suitable to answer. You are quite familiar with our own region, Southeast Asia, and you're presently living in the Middle East. Uh, so uh, the, the, the questions related to Israel's uh, relationship with uh, this region, especially, uh, you know, Abraham Accord and its dynamics with Malaysia and Indonesia, Indonesia and the Muslim population living here. A couple of questions from uh, Thomas Tan. Uh, he asks, uh, why are Muslim states in Southeast Asia, Malaysia and Indonesia reluctant to have full exchange of diplomatic recognition with Israel? Uh, Malaysia, for all intents and purposes, does not have any policy, this is what he says, towards Israel, uh, other than a carry-on of former uh, Prime Minister Mahathir's uh, approach. So uh, now that the government in Malaysia has changed, would that also change uh, the relationship between Israel and Malaysia? So if you could answer these questions linked to our region. Thank you. I think Mahathir is, uh, former Prime Minister Mahathir, uh, Mahathir's uh, influence in Malaysia, and especially when it comes to Israel, is, is still something that weighs very heavily. I, I, I wouldn't claim to speak of, you know, on behalf of Malaysians or the Indonesians, obviously. Uh, but um, so like you've said, um, there aren't relations, open diplomatic relations. Israelis can travel with special visas to Malaysia. It's a, it's a special sort of setup, but not tourist visas. To Indonesia right now, although there are no diplomatic relations, uh, for the past, a few years ago, uh, Indonesia essentially allowed Israelis to travel tourist visas. If they want to go to places like Bali, they can. They just have to apply for a visa, but they can. Um, you know, as to why, Israel certainly does want to uh, have diplomatic relations with these two countries. Indonesia is, is pretty much key. Malaysia is also very big, and in terms of population, is along the ranks of Turkey and Iran. Um, and so it's, it's a big Muslim country. Um, and, uh, uh, and like I mentioned earlier, Israel has been in talks with Indonesia. I don't know if it's tried. I must imagine that it has also tried in some way to reach out to Malaysia. Uh, but I, I, don't, you know, I haven't come across mention of that. But I know with Indonesia, it has. I don't have the specific details. Um, so with Indonesia, it's been, I, I, there is trade as well with Indonesia, right? But it's trade of the sort that, uh, for instance, some years back, I walked into a furniture shop here in, in Jaffa and I, uh, and I inquired as to the origin of these, uh, you know, the, the stuff, the, the, the things that he was bringing in, the, the shop owner, and everything came from Indonesia. And then I asked him, how do you, how were you able to, how did you manage to bring it through? And then he got very sensitive and he wasn't willing to answer my question, but it was all, you get Indonesian things, uh, you get trade with Indonesia, that's my point. Uh, but it's been under the radar, like it had been for, you know, between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, uh, and, and a couple of other countries as well. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think on the Israeli side, the, the will is certainly there. On the Asian side, I, I don't know what their, exactly their uh, motivations or their concerns are. So, um, but I think that one of the things, one of the uh, factors that might remove that obstacle is if the Saudis themselves uh, eventually, you know, if, if, a, if a normalization agreement actually came to fruition between Israel and the Saudis. Thank you uh, so much, Kim. Uh, uh, this uh, question related to uh, 
uh, Abraham Accord and the normalization of relationship, Kirk de Souza asks, what is the likelihood of formal Saudi-Israeli diplomatic ties, uh, presumably if or when Crown Prince MBS consolidates power? And what would the foreign policy implications be for the predominantly Sunni Muslim nations in Southeast Asia? It's linked to this region as well. To Southeast Asia. So uh, working backwards, I think that would certainly open up, I think that would likely, very likely open up the floodgates for relations with uh, countries like Indonesia. Indonesia, yes. Malaysia, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Malaysia has its, has its own, uh, Israeli operatives, for instance, allegedly, you know, killed uh, or assassinated a Hamas operative in Malaysia a while back. Um, but in terms of the, the likelihoods or, or the prospects for a Saudi-Israeli um, uh, normalization, I think it's not just, okay, two things. So firstly, uh, if or when MBS, if he remains the crown prince until the end, and his father, King Salman, passes away and he does become uh, king, I think he does, would prefer, and he does want to uh, reach out for normalization, uh, certainly more than his father, um, and probably more than most Saudi uh, royals. Uh, on the other hand, I think what's also been stalling it at this moment, at least, has got to do with the quid pro quos that I was talking about with regards to the US. Had the Trump, um, the Trump administration continued this year instead of Biden, you know, there is, there was, and there is chatter here that, a counterfactual for sure, but there is chatter here that, you know, we probably would have seen the Saudis coming out in the open and saying, okay, we will also, we also want to sign a normalization deal with Israel. That didn't happen. Uh, we recall that, for instance, there were these quid pro quos that I was talking about in the case of the UAE, even though, even if this was denied as such, in the UAE, it received, it got F-35s, the stealth fighters in the US, uh, with Israeli approval as well. Uh, in the case of Morocco, it was American uh, recognition of its of Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara against the Polisario Front. Um, and in Sudan, it was, uh, I think it's had to do with being taken off sanctions list. Uh, uh, but you had these quid pro quos that were in place. Some of them may have come to fruition, some of them not entirely. So for instance, in the case of Morocco, and I think Sudan, I'm not sure, but in the case of Morocco, I think the ties are good now, but some of these things that the previous administration in the US had promised probably has yet to you know, realize them in full. Uh, I don't know what, you know, with the Saudis, they already are buying up a lot of American hardware. So on that front, it's, it's hard to imagine how much more they can really get in terms of cutting edge military technology from the US. Uh, there are some things that would, that have uh, got Israeli sensitivities, obviously, because in the end, when we talk, when I spoke about technological superiority in the early part of my lecture, it's about the US also helping Israel to maintain its technological edge. And that includes even if countries that are at peace with Israel, because you never know when regimes might change. Um, so that's also the other thing. It's not just the will of MBS uh, to want to forge such an agreement, but also what it gets in return, I think. Thank you so much, uh, Kevin. You have almost answered all the, all the questions. One question, I think it could be the last question. It linked, relates to you, your personal life also. It's asked by Boxon, and this could be the last one. Why is local produce more expensive, expensive in Israel than in the US? Any thoughts on that? <laughs> Because they're monopolies here, and because uh, the government, well, certainly the, the previous government, Netanyahu, uh, had been, and still is to a large extent, a very neoliberal 
kind of uh, driven by neoliberal sort of economics. Israel started off as a socialist, uh, not socialist in the socialist sense, but a Zionist socialist uh, kind of society. And over the years, it's come to privatize a lot of its uh, economy. But with uh, the government really pushing forward on, on this neoliberal, this whole neoliberal orientation, it's very, it's come to really heavily favor tycoons, for instance. And that's one of the grievances among Israelis here. You get uh, people here that hold concessions, exclusive con concessions and monopolies on uh, certain things. Uh, and that includes uh, dairy products, for instance. Dairy products is something, it's something that's very basic. And so um, they are price makers and we are price takers, right? And we don't really have a say. There were, there were protests here, large scale protests numbering up to maybe a million or maybe short of a million uh, many years ago over the past decade. But over time, over the years, they've sort of just fizzled out. They didn't really, people just are resigned um, to the state of affairs. So, um, so they do sell things. For instance, there's this chocolate. What I was referring to specifically was this chocolate called the Besigzman or break, like a break time. In, in Hebrew, that's sold in the US that's, that's more expensive than in Israel. Sorry, that's sold cheap, more cheap, uh, lower cost than compared to Israel at the dollar, rate, uh, dollar shekel exchange, uh, just because they can. Quite observant you are, Kevin. So delight, uh, delightful to have discussion with you, uh, posing questions to you and listening to your answers. I hope I have covered all the questions directly or indirectly, apologize for uh, not taking some of the names of the questioners because of the paucity of time. Uh, but I think the audiences would uh, agree with me that it was really a very delightful, insightful, and very informative session with you, Kevin. I hope to host this kind of session again. And I thank you uh, to you, to the audience, and also Middle East Institute for organizing such a wonderful event. And uh, I hope to see uh, all of us uh, next week uh, uh, in, in our next session. Uh, please uh, look at the calendar. Thank you so much.